Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Nina Nandi, your co-host for the AGA Podcast, Small Talks, Big Topics. Today, I'm very excited to introduce this episode with my co-host, Matthew Whitson. He's going to be talking to three different GI Fellowship Program Directors from three very different programs with respect to location, size, and other factors. As you know, Matthew is the GI Program Director at Hofstra Northwell on Long Island. So you're going to get a really great in-depth view of what fellowship PDs look for in choosing a successful GI fellow straight from the source. This is very high-yield information. You're going to learn a lot. So he's going to be talking to Joan Culpepper Morgan, who's the chief at Harlem Hospital and the GI PD there, Millie Long from UNC, who's the vice chief of education and GI fellowship program director, who focuses on IBD research, as well as Justin Kupek, who is the GI program director and associate professor at West Virginia University. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. All right, Joan, do you mind introducing yourself first? Not at all. Thanks, Matt. I'm Joan Culpepper Morgan. I'm the program director at Harlem Hospital in New York City. It's a very small program with one fellow per year in an inner city hospital that takes care of uh, mostly Black and Latino patients. We are part of the Health and Hospitals Corporation system of 11 hospitals. So it's the largest municipal hospital system in the country. And our program is primarily clinical. Our goal is to turn out really um, first-rate general gastroenterologists who can jump into a practice, speak first, and start right away. Great. Thank you, Joan. Uh, Millie, do you mind introducing yourself next? Sure. Millie Long. I'm at uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I'm the program director there. We have 15 general GI fellows, two advanced IBD fellows, two transplant hepatology fellows, and one advanced endoscopy fellow. And within our GI fellowship, we have a a couple of different missions. We have two separate T32 tracks that train basic science investigators as well as clinical researchers. And then we have a clinician educator track with specific training and education opportunity, obviously for an advanced degree and other training to hopefully end up as a, a career as a clinician educator. So we've got a lot of variety. Awesome. And then Justin, why don't you round us out here? Yeah, absolutely. Justin Kupak. I'm in Morgantown, West Virginia at West Virginia University Hospitals, part of the WVU Medicine healthcare system. We just recently expanded our fellowship to four fellows per year, so we're gradually increasing that. It's up from two just four years ago. We are training general gastroenterologists. Um, However, over the past several years, we've had Some of our fellows go into advanced endoscopy, some of which have returned, which has allowed us to start our advanced endoscopy program this summer. So we're training clinical gastroenterologists with the goal of both providing support to our academic system as well as to provide gastroenterologists, general gastroenterologists to the rest of the state. Awesome. Okay. So, and just for the record, since I'm also a program director, I'll take the moment and the PD for Hofstra Northwell, which is 12 fellows, probably I would describe it as uh, clinical academicians for the most part. 50% tend to go into academics. 
some in subspecialties, some in research, some in med ed, another 50% tend to go into the community a little bit. And we work in the Queens, Long Island border. So we kind of see a, a, a wide variety of patients as well. So between the four of us, four different practices here, four different communities that we serve. So first question I want to ask is, how did we get here? What brought you to be a PD? And how did you get to the hospital and institution you're working at now? I'll open it up to anyone that wants to speak first. Was this always the dream? I'll start because I think I, I might have the longest story. But anyway, I was always interested in academia and in teaching. And that was something that when, when I was training, you know, yeah, everybody wants to teach. Everybody's interested in teaching. But when I left fellowship, I actually fell into a, another program at Norwalk Hospital uh, where they were looking for an associate uh, program director. So I kind of was an, an associate PD almost uh, right out of the box and went from that program to a brief stint in a private practice for about five years and then heard that uh, Harlem Hospital was looking for a program director. So that was about 15 years ago. So I'm actually chief of GI at Harlem and also the program director. So I've been doing this for about 30 years and I clearly I love it or I'm crazy. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the idea of, uh, of turning out young gastroenterologists is, is really fulfilling to me. And I'd have to add that since I've been in two small programs, because Norwalk was just as small as Harlem, is that I, I know each and every one of my fellows very well. It takes on an apprenticeship characteristic, the training that I've done with my fellows. Thanks, Joan. Millie, Justin, how'd you guys get here? For me, I think I always wanted to be in education. I'm also a researcher. And so I really wanted to be able to do both. And teaching research methodology to my fellows is something I really enjoy, as well as teaching, obviously, clinical care. When I put on my clinical practice hat, I do inflammatory bowel disease. But obviously, my fellows are interested in, in everything, and we try to provide them with the right mentorship. And I think, as, as with Joan, you know, even though we have a few more fellows, you really do. I love the relationships. You get to know them. You continue those relationships. Relationships. I still get texts every day from my uh, fellows with a question about an IBD patient. I'm sure you guys too do as well. And it's, it's really nice to keep that continued bond with that goal of really obviously optimizing patient care that we all have at the forefront. And I ended up in my position, we underwent a huge change probably somewhere between five and six years ago. We lost a lot of our faculty. Um, I stuck around the, when I started back from private practice, I actually started as the associate or assistant program director. The whole department turned over. And when our new chief came, he asked me to be program director, a job which, you know, I really had wanted to be in a role I'd wanted to be in for quite a while. So right place, right time. And I, I can tell you, uh, I agree with both of the others. I, it's It's been a very fulfilling position and it's been something that's been really pretty amazing over the last four or five years. So, I, you know, I think as program directors, we all have missions for our programs, right? We have goals, we have objectives. And then sometimes the divisional constraints, the institutional constraints can impact that. So how do you guys balance what you want to achieve with really that patient need, that clinical service need with 
kind of what the needs of the division are. Is that do you guys work closely with the the chair people? Now, Joan, it sounds I'm imagining you work closely with yourself, and that lines up well for you. But I also imagine maybe Millie with a much bigger institution that that's a that's a challenge. Right. No, it, it always is. And I think that we're here to be advocates for our trainees. And, you know, obviously the clinical service part is there, but we they need clinical service to learn, but you have to have the right mix, right? And and I think, you know, some of the key examples, I think where many of us feel this push and pull is with endoscopy, where, you know, obviously efficiency is, is important um, to be able to get the throughput, to get the patients to have their procedures, but training fellows takes time. And so you do have to get the institution to buy in to allow for extended time for fellows to complete training and do some of these procedures. And our institution gets that. And we, we have certain sites where, um, you know, we only have senior fellows because they have higher efficiency and more throughput. We have certain sites where we have first year fellows because we know they need longer in terms of getting up and rolling. And I think being innovative about trying to make sure you're putting the best match with both the clinical service, the needs of the patient, as well as training is where, where we end up. And it's all about, I wish I could collaborate with myself, Jen, that's a pretty good place to be in, but I I have to collaborate with uh, other people (laughs) and, and kind of always be the advocate for my fellows. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's funny because the fellows really at my institution, they are the backbone of the department. And because really the, the attendings, we don't have private patients as, as it were. All of the patients belong to the fellows. So they scope all of the patients. So there's not like the attendings saying, you know, you got to hurry up because I've got to do this and I've got to do that. We are almost here to serve them. So the second year fellow is kind of the workhorse, if you will, and who does the majority of the scopes. The, sec- the first year fellow is coming along. The third year fellow can, can do advanced stuff and do what they want, and they, they balance it out that way. But it's, it's interesting that we tell the hospitals, say, look, you know, you lose the fellowship, you're not going to really be as productive with a bunch of part-time attendings and a couple of PAs in a public hospital. So they realize that the fellows add great value to the program. And not only, not only in terms of endoscopy, but in terms of how they teach, in turn, teach the residents. The fellows are actually value added in a city hospital as opposed to being a drag on productivity. They are the productivity as well as the, as well as the educators. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I think, right in between as far as the, our section between the two of you and I, our, our section has grown, but we're not as large as maybe UNC. I have a great relationship with my section chief. So my section chief says, hey, we have this issue, coverage, for example, call coverage, uh, et cetera. I go to the fellows, we work out a plan. I love working with my chief fellow who is, you know, they've been there a couple of years, kind of know the lay of the land. So we have we always have a plan in place. I like to be a little bit proactive, but unfortunately, I'm, I, I think a lot of this is more reactive, but it's very quickly reactive. I think that while work needs to be done, I still think that the happiness of the fellow is still at the forefront as, uh, from my standpoint as a program director. And I think they all understand that they need to do the work. It's just evenly distributing the work. And, and I think that that's one of the main goals. From an institutional standpoint, I could not be more impressed at what the GMEC and, and WVU has done for our hospital and the healthcare system. I couldn't even tell you the number of programs 
that they've added in the past two to three years, the, the amount of expansion that they've done. You know, it, it's it's a very impressive place to work, and it is very, very resident and fellow friendly. It's truly an amazing place to, to train. Justin, this, I think that's key, what you said, and that's true of our program, too, is I think our roles as program directors, we're here to make sure they meet requirements, they learn what they need to learn. But in my fellowship, and I'm sure in yours, it's a very fellow-driven fellowship. You know, our, our, our fellows are involved in all of these decisions and, you know, help to set the schedules and help to determine their call schedule and, and all of these things and help us to figure out what works best for both patient care and for them. And I think that's what's so key is having the fellows be integrally involved in the, the management um, of their education because that ownership becomes really important. The ACGME has requirements and many times those requirements are useful to be able to tell administration, you know, we need to have manometry because it's an ACGME requirement. And just as a bonus, we'll support the bariatric surgeons really well if we can do their manometry for them. So look, it's a win-win. So I, I think many times, I mean, I, I, I haven't been ashamed to use the fellowship to support the division to say, you know, we'd like to have these things and it's a requirement and also it makes money. And it's like, hey, guys, that, that's it's, it's great all around. I love that. I love that. I'm going to start using that. I, uh, I really, my favorite thing, though, to do is ask the fellows what they need. What do you need from me? What can I do? Are you happy? Do you regret your decision? You know, stick with us. So I, I really enjoy that. I did it. I did, I did it in clinic today. I asked, you know, two of our fellows, hey, what do I need to do to make your life better? I mean, if it's not me that they tell, they tell the other fellows and then they come tell me. So that, that's one of my favorite things to ask them. I like this relationship building with the fellows. And I think one of this, this insight that gives us, to, we know who's going to succeed in our individual programs. And I'm, I'm curious if the same fellow succeeds in all four of these programs, or it's a different characteristic set that really, that really, leads to a successful three years, four years, whatever it is. So I'm curious, when you guys think about the fellows that come out of your program that are really successful at the program, what are those characteristics? What are those traits? What are those behaviors that really lead to success here and, and in the future? Well, you know, I, I, I would say my, my fellows are definitely problem solvers. I mean, if you want to bring up to the top one of the six competencies, it's, you know, systems practice because we're a resource poor hospital. And there's always something that we don't have or we don't have enough of. And there's always a workaround that has to be created. And, and they do it. You know, they figure it out. And they're like, you know, Dr. Culpepper, can we, do you think that this would be okay? And, you know, are we breaking any rules here? And, uh, well, maybe we can do it another way. So there, there's a lot of analysis about how, how we can get a patient from one point to another if a patient doesn't have a service. Uh, getting a, a transfer expedited, they think on their feet. And I think those fellows who are able to do that, who are able to think on their feet, problem solve, realize, okay, we can't go down path A, I've got B, C, D in, in my pocket, and, and I, I'm ready to execute on that basis. So those, those are the people that do, that do well. The ones that don't do well are the ones that kind of get stuck and, and don't and can't, can't really think of an alternative pathway to solve a problem. Can't imagine that's a trait that doesn't work for all of us. <laughs> right. It, 
Absolutely. That flexibility and that ability to think on your feet and, and go with a plan B is a huge part, I think, of any fellowship. You know, as, as because we're a little bit of a bigger fellowship, I would say the most important aspect for us is the ability to work as a team. Because really, the fellows cover for each other, they help each other, they answer each other's questions. It's, it's, they are who they go to first, you know, that you have, you know, when you're a first year, you have third year fellows who know how to get everything done and, you know, and, and can help you navigate the systems. And that teamwork aspect is what I'm really looking for in an application process. And that's what really kind of resonates for my extremely successful patient fellows. And then the second aspect is a continued commitment to the patient, that patient centricity, the fact that the fellow is not going to stop until that patient is taken care of. You know, that aspect of, you know, we really consider it, as I know you all do at your programs, the most important aspect of being a UNCGI fellow is kind of putting that patient first. And so those two things, a team player works well with others and and really is going to go the extra mile for the patient. Those are the things that make you successful in fellowship. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think one of the coolest things is to see that June 30th, first year fellow show up on July 1st as a second year fellow, thinking that they don't know much on June 30th. And then July 1st, having a whole new outlook on, on how, and, and to me, that, that team player, that, that willingness to, to, to chip in and, and to be that semi-attending is as a really cool trait to see. In, in addition to what both of you have said, I, I really, I, I find in our location, I, I feel that respect and willingness, to, humility, a little bit of willingness to take advice also goes a long way towards being a, a good gastroenterologist. And, and I mean, not, not so much respect for me because I, I don't want that. I want respect for my patients. I want respect for my for my nurses, for for everybody across the board, and, and I think that those nurses are a great resource. And you know, if the fellows are willing to be open to take advice from and learn from everyone around them, I think that that makes them a more complete human being. You know, it's interesting. You know, Millie said for a large program, and then it's it's funny. You know, for a small program too, team being a team player is critical. There's three of them. And if they can't depend on each other, and if one of them is an unreliable person or doesn't take their responsibility seriously, it entire thing falls apart. So I, I think many of these characteristics, they, they manifest differently in different size programs, but they're the same characteristics that are necessary for success in fellowship wherever you go. So you guys all identified kind of behaviors and characteristics. Are there pure academic things about the fellows that succeed for you all or medical knowledge things or anything in that realm that really dictates who's going to succeed or not succeed coming into your program separate of almost what we do with them and sending them into the world is there something is there a trait there maybe for the t32 people a certain amount of research has to be there Absolutely. And, you know, and I actually, yes. So for our T32 tracks, we want someone who has previously done research, but, you know, just as much as I, I almost don't care exactly what that research was, but I want them to have had a clinical question that was relevant. And I want them to start a project from the beginning to the end and complete it all the way through to publication so they can go on that journey. And when they've done that and they've proven that they can, can repeat that cycle and that they know what it takes to complete a project, 
that's someone who's going to do very well on either of our T32s. And so that's really what we're looking for with track record is not the specifics of what they studied. It's that ability to know how to ask the clinical question and most importantly, complete it. Absolutely. Again, I, not necessarily a, for me, not necessarily a study, but if you've had a case report and you've been able to ask a question about that case report and take it from top to bottom and get that thing published, that person is going to do well because that person is, is able to look at a case, ask a question, research the literature, find out what's new, what's not new. Those characteristics are very, are very important. I mean, I've, I've had people who come for interviews and they, they are, their names are part of a cast of thousands on very various studies. And I say, well, tell me about this study. And they have, they have no idea. They spent all summer pipetting and they have no idea what they were doing. So people have to to be able to ask and answer a question and also know what they were doing in the study that they were involved in. Yeah, I agree. I've, uh, we had 400, as of today, we have 446 applications for our program. And I, I look at, we, we have these arbitrary cutoffs of, oh, this, this will make a good candidate and this wouldn't. I, I think somewhere along the way, two or three or four or five research projects is the same as 90. I feel that some effort, some interest, some, like you said, uh, ask a question and answer and, and research that and delve into it. I think to me that that is somebody that would make a, a good fellow and a good gastroenterologist. It sounds like we're talking about depth and inquisitiveness more than we're talking about being prolific. Is that? Yeah, more quality over quantity. Right. I don't think I'm going to I'm going to guess because I even though I don't know Justin Joan well but I'm going to guess that none of the three of us counts the number of abstracts or publications someone has on their ARCV and I'm going to throw that in there too because I know we all think the same <laughs> way and I think it, it's it's much more important to me to see that they have owned something and completed it than to have 12 things where as Joan mentioned they're in the middle or or what have you it's really very much about that inquisitiveness, that in, that individualization, their part in completing the project more so than numbers. And the enthusiasm, right? You know, they come and they say, oh, oh, this, this was a great case. And then they start talking about it. And you can see that they, they really were the one to initiate this and, and to say, wow, this is, this case is a gee whiz and I, I want to know more about it or, this this project or this quality improvement project was a was a gee whiz, okay? And I I wanted to make this better, and this is what we did, and this is how we made it better, as opposed to struggling to know what that project was really about and why it was really being done. That's not a good look. It's not a good feeling when you're asking, you know, tell tell me about that project, and you're getting some vague answers. Yeah, and I'm I'm not the world's best interviewer in the sense that I asked the applicants to tell me about themselves. And one of my questions is, pick one of the research projects that you like the best or that you enjoyed the most or you got the most out of. And and I agree, if if they're unable to really give me an idea, then I'm not sure they put as much work in as somebody say, oh, this really interesting case of X, Y, and Z, it's never been reported before. And, you know, to me, that that's somebody that, that really would fit in. 
So Justin, I think that gives us a lead into my next question. Very nicely, I'll give you the five dollars on the side for that one. So that, oh, that would, fantastic. no Thank problem. You. Do you need my Venmo? <laughs> so you, you can send me a request. Yeah, <laughs> we don't we don't do brands here unless they're uh, paying for some uh, kickbacks. Oh, yeah. okay. no, it's, it's fine. Uh, I think it's a verb now, a Venmo. So. So, right. So you were mentioning it, right? You have 450 some odd applications. You know, I don't know what Joan Millie, I'm assuming it's at least that for both you guys, right? You have these values, you have these traits, you have these behaviors, you think of fellows that will succeed here. How do you suss through all of these applications to, to bring to that interview to figure out if they will work or like, are there things that you guys are looking for? Maybe it's not number of applications, but some scholarly product, it seems like we're all kind of looking for. Are there other things that you're looking for in the application that say to you, this, my person might succeed in my program. Let me bring him in for an interview to hear more. Yeah. To be fair, I would say of the 450 applicants, there are probably 450 wonderful gastroenterologists in the future it's it's the the application process and and i I don't want to speak for everybody else i think until two or three years ago we didn't get quite as many so we have more applications to review because of the virtual nature of them but it just opens your eyes to see how highly qualified all of these applicants are and how just amazing their applications are i'm a people pleaser and i really don't like to cut people off. And if I could interview 450 people, I would. However, that's completely, <laughs> it's completely impractical. No, so, yeah, no, 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 no. I've been told. I've been told. In fact, I, I got an eye roll when I said 40 for four positions. So, you know, I, I'm pushing 40. So uh, a lot of currently what I'm doing is because we are in the geographic location that we're in, I do offer some preferential interview spots for folks that trained in the area, folks that are from the area, folks that have ties to the area. So, you know, anybody that went to West Virginia University for medical school, uh, anybody that trained here. So, so that takes a portion. I also rely on networking in the sense that my former fellows that I have great relationships with, those fellows say, hey, Kupek, can you interview or can you review they don't say interview can you review the application of so and so i'm always happy to do that so what i've tried to do over the past four to five years as program director is is cultivate this relationship with all my fellows that i know have been trained by the standard who have contacts or know of somebody that would fit the mold to be one of our fellows yeah i'd I'd have to agree with that i mean i i use uh kind of a, a geographic ties. I, I, I tend to um, look at applicants who, who are, are coming from other health and hospitals, corporation uh, hospitals, because uh, their training is very similar to my residence training. They, they understand how these systems work, how municipal hospitals work. I look at municipal hospital systems in other parts of the country, Cook County or Miami-Dade, places where I know that they had a similar kind of, of experience with similar kinds of, of, of patients. And, and, you know, our patients are not easy. And if you haven't had to, to deal with this volume of work before, it can be daunting. So our residents know what, what, what this is. And, and uh, I would say if the, I make any cuts that are not purely academic, they would be on the basis of, uh, of geography. 
Well, I, I like you. I, I do think geography is important. Um, and, you know, I obviously I, I know very well people at training programs around me, whether that's Duke or UNC or, or various um, areas in the southeast. Uh, but I do say, think that you know, our program has a, a national footprint. We have people from California, from Boston, from from everywhere. And I, and I, my job, I feel like, is to find uh, the potential best of the best and show them what UNC has to offer and why we can be a great place to train. And so, you know, when I'm looking through those applications, I definitely look at geography, but I also look at if someone has told me a really interesting life story in their personal statement. And I put that down and I say, I have got to meet that person. That person's going to be invited to interview. If if the person has kind of done some research quite clearly about UNC and said, you know, here's what I want to do ultimately in GI. Here's why I want to come to UNC specifically, because I'd like to work with X, Y, or Z, or I'd like to obtain this research training through your School of Public Health, um, because I'd like to have specific training in research methodology or whatever it may be. And it's clear to me that person has put in an extra effort to understand a little bit about my program and how it could be a good fit for them. And then I know that that they're serious, you know, uh, about our institution and our program. And I'd like to bring give them a chance to come and see more. And so it's kind of combing through the application for those pearls, you know, those signs of this teamwork we've been discussing. You know, they've had other leadership roles. They've worked on teams. They've been on committees. Um, they were an athlete, whatever it may be, you know, that they've had some experience in teamwork. Those are the sort of things I try to pull out of these applications. And, and again, relying on our network of former fellows, I think all of us, you know, really trust our former trainees and they're out there now all over the country, hopefully spreading the word about great places to train. And so that goes a long way as well. Do you guys have a favorite part of the application to read? Millie, it sounds like you're going to tell me it's a personal statement. Yeah. Well, so it can go very well, or it could go very wrong (laughs) in both directions. Um, And And I think that for me, when it goes really wrong, this may just be a personal thing, but if the whole personal statement is a a clinical vignette about a patient that they cared for, then they're not really teaching me about themselves and why they are going to be a good addition to my program and what their character attributes are. I don't want a regurgitation of their CV, but I want to kind of really learn something about them that can help me to see how they'd fit into my program. And so I think it's a misboat when you don't come out of that personal statement saying, I think I know something about this applicant now. And so that's, that's the hook for me. And so, yes, I think it can make it or break it. I don't know. What about you guys? I agree with personal statement, but one of the things that I look for and it's a real turn off is bad writing. Bad writing. Yeah, that's that's just, I, I can't get past that. I really think that that's, that's one of my pet peeves about doctors. Doctors really don't write well, don't communicate well, and... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So that, yeah, I mean, the stories, yeah, the, the personal stories, that's, that's one thing, but the, 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 the style and that they, that they put it together well, that they, that they bother to proofread or the spelling errors is like, ah. Yeah, you, that's low hanging yeah. fruit. You gotta yeah, get you that gotta out of there. Yeah, you gotta get that, that out of there. I mean, I, I, my, <laughs> my APD yeah. is vicious about spelling mistakes in opening statements of uh, personal statements. There, there, and there. <laughs> so, more grammatical. I, I tell you, I'm I'm an unusual person in the sense that I like to run, but I really I enjoy what people do in their spare time. I enjoy hobbies. I'm all left brain, so anybody that's got right brain capabilities, I highly respect that. I, I like the artists, and I like everybody's aptitudes, and and I really I 
I think you can learn a lot about somebody, yes, from the personal statement, absolutely, but asking them what they like to do, whether they like to cook or, you know, to me, that's been a really neat uh, icebreaker, if you will, um, both both looking at the applications and talking to them. Absolutely. That, that's my favorite part of the interview. Yeah. I was going to say one of one of the most interesting candidates that I ever interviewed was a young woman from uh, Oklahoma who was part of a bluegrass group. She was the banjo player with the rest of her family. She'd been doing that since she was a little girl. And we had to interview this woman. She was just fantastic. You know, we, 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 we were thinking, Bet she'd be a great endoscopist. And I mean, it was just like, <laughs> and you could start a fellowship band. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, man. There's the fundraising yeah. opportunity for the educational <laughs> funds as well to charge money to the bands. Uh, she was she was a very cool person, and I, I don't know where she ended up going, but I, you know, I imagine she got multiple multiple interviews because uh, you know they, she was a semi professional musician and. Uh, playing an instrument that's not that easy. And uh, I think everybody thought that she would be a great endoscopist. So it was, uh, but she was, she was very cool. She was very cool. Are the letters of recommendation the same thing you're looking for? Like those glimpses into the human behind the application? Or is there something else you're looking for in letters? Uh, uh, do you care if it's all GI? Does, does it, can it be medicine people elsewhere? Right. So it does not need to be GI. It just needs to know, it'd be someone who knows them well and can comment on various character attributes and, you know, their work ethic and, you know, potentially research projects that they've um, completed. But I think that's a mistake I see sometimes where people feel like they have to have all GI letters and it might not be someone who knows them that well. So it's not a fantastic letter. And I would much rather see a letter from a general internist who knows them well or a, a cardiologist who they rotated with as a resident and, and did a fantastic job and other procedural, especially whatever it may be. Um, so I think that that is really important. And, tell, yeah, and tells a specific story. I like the ones that are not just, you know, generalities um, as this person works well with others and has a good fund of knowledge. And, but, you know, it's like, okay, we were working with this patient and it was very difficult for this reason. And this is what Jack did that was outstanding. Um, those are great letters because you really get a, a, a great feeling for the person um, out of those, those vignettes. If someone is applying for a research track, to not have a letter from a research mentor would be something of a red flag or something that wouldn't, it kind of just wouldn't fit. And so if you are applying for a research track, that would be an important letter to have as well. So I, I have two, I have two takes on that. I think that one, that it is nice to have that very specific input. And I, and I try to write my letters of recommendation with a specific case or a specific project that so-and-so is working on. And, and I think that that goes a long way. And my other take, I, and again, I, this may sound a little bit negative, but I'm more concerned about somebody that doesn't have a good letter of recommendation than I am impressed that somebody has a good letter of recommendation. Because to me, that's, you know, either you didn't research uh, who should have given you that letter, or maybe things aren't as good as the other rec letters of recommendation say. So I, I don't want that to sound negative, but just you know, as a, uh, just be aware that good letters of recommendation are certainly at a premium. There's certainly nothing better than when you read a letter from like a, 
ICU physician who says something along the lines of, I wish they were going into ICU because you know they can handle the sickness. Right. Like, right. I'm like, oh, right. that that's that's the that's what I want to see. But yeah, no, if we can get a if we can encourage people to get away from these one week electives and they're on sick call two of them and they saw one case to a physician, but um, and then the letter has the CV for the first four paragraphs. Those are always more fun to lead, uh, read when they're a personal statement about the applicant. Besides for typos, Joan, are there other red flags you look for? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, I think that having uh, gone through too many of these, when you're reading, a, a, a lot of people go with their own family stories. There's a family member who who had a particular um, uh, disease and, 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 and so forth, and this is why they want to do GI. And, you know, sometimes these things are, are, are believable and, and, and sometimes they're not, especially, you know, when people are applying to more than one fellowship at, at one time. So I, I think that the letters are good, but they, they better be consistent with the rest of the application. Sometimes they, they trip themselves up on their on their, their personal statement and say, you know, I love GI. I've always loved GI. There's been nothing else but GI except for when I got turned down by cardiology. So I decided I was going to try to do GI. <laughs> right. you, you know, and if you get caught, if you get caught in that story, then it's, 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 it's over. It's over. They need to own it. So this is the thing I look for, Matt. What, what are, where are the gaps that they didn't explain? You know, and so, you know, guess what? If you happen to have failed one of your USMLEs, we get that report too. So explain that, you know, this is the reason why this is what's going on in my life. Here's what I did on the next one. If you happen to have not matched the first time in GI, and maybe you've worked for a ho- as a hospitalist for two years, don't try to gloss over that in your application. I've worked as a hospitalist. This is what I've done to better prepare myself for a cure in gastroenterology. This is why I'm even more committed after this time period, because we don't, not get it. We know that there are those gaps. We want you to understand and explain to us those gaps and help us to understand why it's fine. And you're more committed now and and, and everything else. But if you don't try to explain it, we're going to look at it as a red flag. Yeah, you're right. I I have interviewed people a second time around and I, I like to know what they learned the first time and and what they did differently, uh, not only for their education, but for mine too, because that way I can at least help some of the the my colleagues and my r- residents who are applying for fellowship and say hey listen let's avoid these pitfalls and i think i think that's it as far as any red flags i'll be honest with you everybody has a bad day if you fail one step one time i think that's fine i think for people that are just applying to gi without much interest in gi i think you can tell it by their application so i i i don't think i have anything additional to add as far as that goes and then, um, you know, concluding kind of this application pathway we're talking about, the interviews, which I think we all agree are, are the best part of the whole application process. We get to know so many cool people. I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely had people reach out that chose to go elsewhere or didn't match with us or whatever it was. And then two years later, we're collaborating on an educational initiative together. I had someone email me asking to be introduced to someone and they were like, hey, I still think about our talk about vinyl records together. Did you get anything good? I just bought this. And it, like, it, there's that human quality. It's wonderful. So what are the things you guys look, enjoy most about interviews? Or what are you guys looking for during your interviews? Or is everyone doing behavioral questions? Is everyone just asking about their hobbies? What do you, what, where are you guys trying to 
do with it? You know, I had actually when I was traveling towards the end of the interview season last year, and one of the applicants actually reached out to me, and and I kind of replied back with a picture. I I, I was somewhere kind of neat. And I, I sent a picture and, you know, that kind of triggered a, a pretty neat relationship with this guy. He ended up matching in a, a different discipline, but uh, it was kind of neat. So I, I, I really, I, I like that aspect of it as well. And you're right. The, it's, it, it's one thing to look at applicants as applicants, but after a year or two years or three years, they're our colleagues. And, and, you know, it's, it's very easy to forget that when we're, being so nitpicky when we're looking through these applications, but they're all amazing human beings. And, and it's a, it's a really cool process. And it, it actually kind of weighs on you to some extent, knowing that what we do and some of the decisions that we make impact people so greatly. It's especially true for me because I have one spot per year. And I, I, I tell people, I say, you know, that they're wonderful candidates and I really enjoyed meeting them. And I only have one spot and I can only take one person, and I'm sorry about that. And and I have met people who, as uh, as you said, Matt, you know, that later on they 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 become colleagues, and you you see them, and they become quite successful, or they end up at Columbia, or they end up someplace else close by, and you see them, and and that's gratifying too, you know, because that means that 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 wonderful person that you saw that you would have taken if you could have did wind up being taken by someone and got trained and is now a practicing gastroenterologist. I'm going to uh, be making the move to behavioral interviews, and, and it's not easy, and uh, trying, to, um, trying to create my, my scenarios. It's not easy, but I think it's worthwhile because I think the things that we're, that we're really looking for, um, that we've been really talking about, kind of personal characteristics, I'd like to see if I could get closer to that during the interview process, because there, there is a, it, it is easy to meet somebody who, with whom you have a rapport or you're, you're similar to or vacation the same place you did, and then you're off to the races, you know, and they say, oh, wow, what a cool person. Are they really? Um, or did you just um, find, you know, common ground and, and that, that made you think that they were a great person? I'm going to bite the bullet and move to behavioral interviewing this year. I want to hear how that goes, Joan. <laughs> You'll have to report back. Yes. Joan, we can talk offline. We've been doing it for the last part of it. our interviews are, are behavioral. Not to give that away, I guess, but uh, we, we, we've okay. bought it. We've bought the bullet. You bought the bullet. What about you, Millie? Anything to add? Uh, no, I mean, I, I agree with my colleagues. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, we've met people on the interview trail. They're wonderful applicants. We would have loved to have them at Carolina, but they're somewhere else. And then ultimately, as you mentioned, we end up collaborating or they end up coming back to us for one of our advanced fellowships like IBD or advanced endoscopy. Or uh, actually, we just interviewed a faculty candidate who had interviewed with us uh, for GI fellowship several years ago. So I think it comes full circle. And I think it's also part of our mission to get out there. You know, this is what UNC is like. We'd like you to consider us, if not now, then in the future. And this is why it's a great place to work and train and then potentially even come back as faculty and teach. Right. So it's circle and you hope that you will continue to be involved with these young people throughout their careers, either through some one of our national organizations. I know you all are also heavily involved in the national organizations. I'm very involved in ACG and AGA. And I think it, it becomes a great way to help to support our colleagues. So as we're winding down our conversation, I just wanted to ask all of you if you could share one piece of advice 
to, you know, our audience is, is, is tends to be younger GIs, trainees. What's the advice that you got that really helped launch your career or advice you want to leave with applicants for this incoming season as a, as we get ready to do it all again? Justin, why don't you go first this time, man? Oh, man, you're going to put me on the spot. <laughs> oh, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not really the world's best advice giver. I, I honestly have had more fun in gastroenterology. I think that as I was talking to my fellow that I, when I was leaving today, the, the, the fellowship is a grind. It is a marathon. It is an ultra marathon. It is very long. My advice is to stick with it. My advice is to enjoy it, to embrace it embrace the pain as they say and i really i really envy the bonds that our fellows are creating with their co-fellows and i i think that's something to cherish and something that they can take with them for the rest of their lives so i i think that enjoy what they're enjoy the present and what they're doing now and 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 don't take it for granted you you dropped a wonderful nugget. I don't know why you're saying you don't give great advice. That was fantastic. <laughs> I I just like to say I agree. That's a lot easier. <laughs> All right, Millie, what you got? Oh, you were going to go to Jonah. I'm, I'm doing the reverse circle. Uh, <laughs> okay, you're 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 changing it up, Matt. Okay, but that's good. I actually want Joan to go last because I can't wait to hear what she has to say. You know, from my perspective, I think be honest with yourself and be honest with the programs you're applying to. You know, if you are interested in a career as a researcher, apply and take advantage of that training during the course of your fellowship. You won't ever again get an opportunity to get a master's in public health or take additional um, coursework. If you're interested in a career as a clinician educator, embrace that. There are many fantastic educators at every program out there. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in a career in clinical practice, we all train people in clinical practice. And so be honest with yourself, be honest with us. We want to put the best clinicians out there to take care of patients for us, you know, in the state of North Carolina and beyond. And I think you do yourself a disservice by being dishonest with where your goals are. Let We can help you reach those goals no matter what they are. And so I think that is what is key. Be honest with yourself, what you want to do, and find a program that's going to support you to do that. I'm going to dovetail off of what Millie said and to tell applicants that they should stop and think if they really want to do GI and what aspect of GI and then think about the worst day that you'll have in that particular field. Like clinical medicine, I'm, I'm going to talk about IBS. You've got, you've got your roster for the day and you've got Five IBS patients, and can <laughs> you five. handle okay. that? <laughs> can can you can you handle it back to back? You've got five, you know, women under five foot with 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 colons. Oh. <laughs> you have to do. Don't forget they've had a hysterectomy. Right, right, right. You, right. <laughs> you have to think about these days. Where, I'm just glad I didn't say that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we could. It's a hard we could, colon. We could, Joan, I bet Joan and I do more. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Female colonoscopies—they are hard. <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll confess, I had to make that jump from private practice because my practice became eighty-five percent female, and I just could not do it anymore. But think of think of the worst. Think of the worst day. I mean, if you're in there and you're pipetting till nine o'clock at night, I mean, you've got to think of these days because these days are going to happen. And you have to be able to sustain yourself during that time. And if you don't mind, if you say, hey, you know, that's 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 part of the job, then you're in the right field, then go for it. You know, go full throttle. 
that would be my advice. That's a wonderful piece of advice to end on. As I say, good night and goodbye to all of you. Where can people follow you all on Twitter? I believe all of you are active. Oh, boy. I believe my handle is joan.culpepper. I believe that's accurate, Joan. I, I double-checked you. before. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Millie, what are you? I'm at MLongMD, and you can also follow us at UNC Gastro. Justin? I am MD Marathon, and I will find you Dr. Culpepper. Guys, thank you so much for being with, uh, here with us. Uh, this is really, really wonderful. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.